The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities, or NASCA, is providing this podcast as a service to its members, associate members, and others. But it is neither a legal interpretation nor a statement of NASCA policy. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the NASCA Association. Views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by the NASCA podcast host are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the view of NASCA or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our office at nasca.org. Welcome to the official podcast of NASCA, the National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities. Here you will find conversations, lectures, and thoughts on various topics involving controlled substances. Leading experts sharing their knowledge and ideas on today's medications, dangerous drugs, and substance abuse. NASCA is an association of state government agencies, along with various stakeholders, who oversee controlled substances. Through this association, we work together to make our country, our world, a safer place. I'd like to welcome everybody to the program. I appreciate you tuning in for this exciting podcast. We have with us today Chris Vonswell. Did I pronounce that right, Chris? Yes, you did. Thank you, Alan. And Chris is the, I think, uh, if I get your title correct, you're the Vice President or Senior Vice President of Security for ScriptSafe. Is that right? That's correct. Thank you. So let me just rather me muddle through your bio, which is an impressive bio. I just, I'm going to let you do it because you're going to tell it much better than I do. So why don't you go ahead and, and give us your bio and then we'll we'll start a discussion about pharmacies and robberies and everything that we're seeing that's going on, especially in uh, in this area of this pandemic now. Thank you, Alan. Keep it short as possible. Um, six years with ScriptSafe, the uh, pharmaceutical security, pr- primarily drug diversion control, first and foremost, was with retail pharmacy, then looking at uh, the different controlled substance, regulated license and registrants. But my background before that where I really got my knowledge from dealing with narcotics was 16 years with the Coast Guard and dealing with transnational crime and narco-terrorism part-time. Uh, four years with the Navy also as well, to not deal with drug interdiction with there, but with the Coast Guard being uh, primarily in the 7th Coast Guard District, we call it the tip of the spear, covering uh, the Southeast United States, the Bahamas, down to the Caribbean, the narco uh, channel uh, into the U.S. besides the over-border crossings and the Pacific Ocean, the Eastern Pacific Ocean as well. So I did a lot of, with the secret level clearance, a lot of intel, a lot of joint task force work with other agencies looking for illicit drugs, illicit hazardous materials, anything that should not be coming into the U.S. to identify its root sources, gather intel, and interdict it. And so it was a good fit for me coming over to ScriptSafe, having that kind of background where uh, human intelligence is the most critical component of what we do. Uh, analytical, more so coming online, but 
at the end of the day, it's the human intelligence factor. And happy to have been here for six years at Script Safe, working with everybody in industry, healthcare and pharmaceutical, and particularly working with all the members of the NASCSA and other trade and policy groups. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show, and, and thank you for your service. That's a lot of hard work out there dealing with narco-terrorism and those sort of things. And Thank you. Thank you. It's uh second hardest thing to that was uh, human interdiction, which is, has greatly cut back thanks to the end of the wet foot, dry foot policy for, for you know, Cuban nationals. It's rewarding with the people I work with, Coast Guard being a very flat, a very efficient organization. Well, we appreciate it. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the program is because you've got you and I have gotten to know each other a little bit through NASCA. And, you know, we had a, a podcast early on where we talked about destroying medications and the importance of doing that. Um, I think it was our second or third podcast, if I remember correctly, for NASCA. Part of that conversation then was talking about storing medications, too, because that's important. And that's something that you do in particular and just some of the things that you're seeing. So I, I wanted to ask you about, you could just talk about you know, the importance of storing medications, and we probably should break it down into two segments, really. I mean, both are equally important, but one of the things that you do and one of the things that you see out there, of course, are medications that need to be safely secured in retail, pharmacy, or just pharmacies in general, as well as in the hospital setting. So maybe you could speak about some of the issues and concerns you're seeing out there. Sure. The laws we're dealing with here, which create unique problems for the different controlled substance segments uh, for practitioners, mid-level practitioners, non-practitioners. We were dealing with a 50-year-old Controlled Substance Act, 50 years old this year, signed by Richard Nixon. And it makes uh, the job more difficult for regulators, for industry, and others to provide corrective action, the compliant solutions at the lowest cost possible. And more importantly, is to, again, at the end of the day, prevent the uh, diversion of a, a legal opioid-controlled substance, whether it be output or not, to an illicit use. And it's very unique in all the different market segments, uh, you know, veterinary, retail pharmacy, uh, inpatient pharmacy, outpatient pharmacy, wherever that may be, uh, uh, opioid treatment facilities, long-term acute care facilities, it goes on and on. And each has its very own unique set of problems. But, we, you know, sticking today for, this, the, for brevity for this conversation, looking at retail pharmacy in particular, and then it, I'll say institutional or say hospital pharmacy, which we serve both very actively. You know, I was invited two years ago or a year and a half ago to California at the request of the California Pharmacy Association, a great organization with almost 6,500 member pharmacists and pharmacies. And they had 270 armed robberies in one year and over 2,300 recorded break-ins. And very unique. So the reason I just bring that up to the uh, listeners of the podcast, geographically, because the laws of certain states, not just the federal oversight laws, but the state regulations can affect the, the level of crime and diversion uh, from a lawful use to an unlawful use based on individual states. And for the listeners of the podcast, whether you're a state pharmacy board or a, a PDMP executive director, deputy director, some of those laws are beyond your control. They don't even 
come down Europe, uh, down health code, health regulation in particular, like in California, they they expunged the criminal drug record of everybody with one proposition. They just recently raised uh, up to $1,000 for what is stolen out of a business in California to to be an appearance misdemeanor. So there are a lot of things happening that are beyond the control of pharmacy regulation. And then there are things within pharmacy regulation. And within pharmacy regulation, back to retail pharmacy, the regulators pretty much in certain aspects have their hands tied, which creates an environment where diversion is a common occurrence. So, for example, in retail pharmacy, which is one of my biggest beefs, as most of the listeners probably know, pharmacists are lawfully allowed to interdisperse their controlled substances throughout their entire stock with the idea back in 1970 that it would be harder for outside people to identify what is controlled and what's not and not be able to take all the inventory. Well, the insurance industry led by pharmacists, Mutual Insurance, did a report a few years ago that identified that roughly 72% of all pharmacy crime is committed with somebody with intimate knowledge of that pharmacy, how it operates, who the employees are, their shift changes between men and women, pharmacists and pharmacists tech, uh, where the narcotics are stored. But they have a good grasp of the layout and workings of the pharmacy, unbeknownst to the pharmacist that he's actually being cased potentially by one of his own employees or by one of his own patients who is getting a 30-day script of hydrocortone. So that kind of makes it additionally difficult for the pharmacist with all of his responsibility that the law right now does not require for these to be secured in their own premise. And some people kick back and say, well, it disadvantages them for an armed robbery, disadvantages them that everything is located in one place. But that that is not shown true uh, in my own workings here for six years is that in the six years I've been here, not one script safe, and this is not an endorsement of script safe, but one pharmacy secured by script safe, only one pharmacy, to my knowledge, was effectively burglarized. So we think we've been successful, but the, with the riots and the COVID, the game has been completely changed. And with hospitals a little more institutionalized, different control factors in place. But again, the law is the law. And what we've been finding with the hospital environment is that the states in particular, with the automated dispensing cabinets, people are forgetting that regardless of what practices, best practices you have, what software you have in place, controls you have in place, that the federal, the, the more stringent of the two regulations, whether it be state regulations or federal regulations, have to be followed. And for hospitals, in particular in New York, for example, for years that have, have automated dispensing cabinets that stored uh, immense amount of particularly Schedule IIs, but not to the federal regulation. And even though they got waivers or watered-down regulation on the automated dispensing cabinets, they've kind of forgotten that they still can't not follow the stricter federal guidelines, which calls for a more stringent uh, protocol in terms of storage and whatnot. All controlled substance uh, registrants need to just follow three things, and, and three things we make clear to everybody. Everything, all the solutions aside, 
constant supervision, chain of custody, and inventory control. So whether you're a retail pharmacist, an institutional pharmacy, a manufacturer, distributor, hospital, veterinary practice, drug treatment facility, ski patrol facility, EMS ambulatory file, fire operation, independent ambulance, acute care, outpatient care, uh, in and day in and out day surgery, oral surgeon, whoever it may be, you really lawfully have to at all times prove to the Board of Pharmacy, State Bureau of Narcotics, DEA, uh, JCO, CARF, Board of Health, that yes, you do know your inventory levels at all time. You do know the actual inventory, what's been coming in, what's been going out, and matching up those uh, controls. And in today's marketplace, I'd say about 80% of the people, 85% do not do that. So we find it particularly prevalent and problematic in the VA uh, and the government health system, the problems I just mentioned. Because at the end of the day, it's a liability factor. As I say to anyone at the end of the day, there is liability, there is exposure. Our number one job is to reduce your exposure to liability details, reducing the possibility of harm to either your employees or to your patients. Well, let me, um, before we continue our discussion, because I want to take a quick break, but I want to come back and I want to talk to you about something you sort of alluded to, but we talk a little bit about regulators, but we had also discussed pharmacy robberies a little bit and how that's, uh, especially how that's going now with COVID. So let me take a quick break and we'll come right back. Before we continue our discussion... I want to take a quick break to inform our listeners about NASCA. The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities is a nonprofit that consists of regular members and associate members. Regular members are from various state governmental agencies who have some authority over controlled substances. Agencies like State-Controlled Substance Authorities, Board of Pharmacies, Health Departments, State Attorneys General, or PDMP administrators. Associate members are individuals and businesses like pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, retail pharmacies, tech and data companies, and others. Their sponsorship provides funding that keeps NASCA operating and allows us to provide educational opportunities like webinars, podcasts, and the annual training conference. NASCA has an executive committee that leads the association. The executive committee is elected by the regular membership and only regular members are eligible to serve on the executive committee. In addition to the executive committee, we also have other committees where both regular and associate members work together. You can learn more about NASCA, its committees and educational opportunities by visiting our website at nasca.org. If you would like to know how to join NASCA or become a sponsor, please visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nascsa.org. All right, thank you for coming back with us. We're back with Chris Vonswell of Script Safe. And before we left the break, we were talking a little bit about regulators and safely guarding medications. We also talked about pharmacy robberies. Chris, you had brought up something I thought was really interesting in just some of our discussions prior to doing the podcast, which was how pharmacy robberies 
are affected by COVID. And I don't necessarily mean the increase in them, because that's probably expected by most listeners, but the idea of what happens during a robbery or during a burglary with a COVID-related world, maybe you could address that for a minute. COVID is just driving, as you said, uh, and not talking about the numbers, but the problem with COVID, not only driving uh, the amount of robbery and, and diversion, because people being isolated and mental health issues, and then everybody walking into a pharmacy with a mask on, lawfully, by the way, these days. <laughs> Before, when you walk into a pharmacy, they'd say, you can't enter a pharmacy. I've seen this in hundreds of pharmacies personally. If you have any type of face covering or anything, they don't, you're not allowed in. So big problem with COVID is the most pharmacy robberies and burglaries. And again, just to distinguish for the listeners who probably know this, most listeners, are, you know, robbery is where the threat or the use of force upon another person. And a burglary, uh, we consider burglary and the insurers do a burglary being that nobody was present during the crime, a, a night break-in. A diversion event be uh, more so a burglary of employee diversion. There's more judicial issues on that. But the real problem is, uh, and we were discussing this with the insurers, with COVID in particular, in a typical farmery robbery or burglary, I'm going to just put them together for a moment. A pharmacy, depending if force was used, a physical force was used on a person or not, a pharmacy usually can open back up in a day or two, whether it be Cardinal, McKesson, or Horst Bergen, whoever it may be, to help quickly replenish that inventory. There's obviously uh, other forms that have to be filled out by law enforcement. But the problem with the COVID-type event even a burglary, and a lot of this, most of this is caught on video, as these uh, perpetrators are rifling through a pharmacy, whether it's uh, there's employees there and customers or not, they're now 90%, 99% of the time do not have gloves on, and they're touching everything. So previously, when a pharmacy was robbed or burglarized, everything that left the pharmacy has to be destroyed. And we're not talking like the RX destroyer type destroyed, like literally has to be destroyed, destroyed. Uh, you have all that hip information, that personal PIH out there. Everything has to be deemed adulterated and compromised. Now you have guys rifling through a pharmacy, guys or girls, mainly guys, rifling through a pharmacy and touching everything, the counters, the equipment, touching inventory, and then fleeing, everything now is compromised in that pharmacy and potentially could have surface contamination of COVID. So now a pharmacy that suffers a robbery or burglary today, and there are 25 to 35 every day in America, uh, every day is a robbery or burglary of a pharmacy in America. I don't talk to a pharmacist today who's an independent pharmacist who has not actually been a victim of a robbery or burglary in their present employment or in their past employment, usually at a chain pharmacy. So come in, two or three people usually rifle through the entire place. They've now, almost like a crime scene, have contaminated everything. So now a pharmacy cannot open back up in one or two days, and they've got to bring in a, a separate firm in there, and they've got to redo the whole place and, and literally can shut them down for a week or two which is to an independent pharmacist operating in a razor-thin margin, uh, literally catastrophic. And I say, look, the number one thing, you need to work with us. 
and worked with law enforcement and worked with industry is to not be put in that situation to begin with. And that's where we can really, NASCA industry can educate and work with the pharmacists to truly educate them to change their operating procedures, their signage, and a lot of other, a few other things that don't cost anything, barely nothing, to not be a victim of a, of, 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 of a crime. So you're talking about, for example, uh, when they put signs out, we don't stock Oxycontin. They were putting signs up that said, we have time delay safes, and that caused a reduction. That's the kind of thing you're talking about, right? Yeah, again, for the perpetrator, if that's the right word to use, please correct me if I'm wrong, but for the perpetrator, it's a calculated risk. They know the police response times. They know the inventory. They know who's working that shift. Uh, a majority, we, there was a time in North Carolina, there was a gang working on, they knew only women pharmacies. They went after the women pharmacies because they knew there would be a, the lower resistance level. You know, it's a calculated risk to rob a independent pharmacist. He could lawfully be carrying a shotgun behind the counter. As an example, a corporate pharmacy, large chain pharmacy, people don't own the business, are not going to put up a fight. But again, it's, we would rather not even see them into that position to begin with because it's just going to disenfranchise young people to get, go to pharmacy school and to get into the profession, which is so critical to the health of our nation, literally. And you know, by putting up the right signage, by saying, hey, I'm a hard target and an easy target, it's going to disenfranchise the perpetrators. Now, there's two type of perpetrators out there. We're talking external threat. There's the gang operations, which operate out of the major cities, St. Louis, Detroit, Atlanta, and other places, and they operate in one mode of operandus. And then there's the one-off perpetrator who just got off you know, a month's supply of, of a scheduled substance and, and needs to get more of it and they can no longer doctor shop it. So there's their different mode of operation. But at the end of the day, like anything else, it's a, it's a risk uh, we had an extremely bad run of pharmacy robberies in Las Vegas about a year or two ago because everybody knew it's published. The average police time response time in Las Vegas was 15 and a half minutes. I was just out there a month ago dealing with this. So if it's 15, the bad guy knows it's 15 and a half minute response time, and he can be in and out of there either through an armed robbery, at that point even a burglary in less than five, what, where's the risk? Where's the risk? We had the same thing here in Western Pennsylvania for a while when you had the promethazine with coating rings that were traveling across various states, and they would come in, and what they would normally do is go to small towns because, as you said, they will actually do a little bit of counter-surveillance, look and see you know, what the police law enforcement response is, what the time is. And in those areas, they would go to towns where there might be one or two officers uh, where that's the only law enforcement that exists in that small town. You know, we have a lot of towns like that here where there's 1,500 residents, 2,400 residents. You might have two police officers that are responsible for the entire town, and they're not on 24-7. And the Pennsylvania State Police, God bless them, though, they don't have the manpower either, and they might have one or two cars out for the entire county. They have to, they look at the time factor, and again, there are steps that, pharmacists can take to make that more unrealistic. I was just on the phone with a pharmacist the other day, the same discussion. Look, you can't, nobody knows how to react in certain situations. 
you certainly don't want to bring any harm to your staff or to yourself. But things uh, lately, unfortunately, because of everything going on, have gotten uh, the, the boundaries have been pushed. I, I kid you not, the boundaries have been pushed where people have been emboldened to, to act out and to uh, get get physically violent in these crimes. So again, it's more of the fact that you want to say, look, uh, I don't carry this. Now, sometimes I may not believe that. Or, you know, the staff does not have access to this. We, treat, we work with a lot of pharmacies, which we think is counterproductive to us. We really work a lot with the, uh, the pill pack facilities. We encourage pharmacies in California, minimize the amount of controlled substances you carry. Don't carry a large stock of controlled substances. Carry uh, only what you, you know, look at your computer, your modeling, your ordering, and only carry, don't carry a month's supply of Schedule Twos in particulars and threes, but carry what you need for the week and work it out more logistically. Uh, uh, not so great today for, for the moment, what I'm saying, just in time delivery, but uh, minimize your, by minimizing your inventory, you minimize your risk, Alan, because you, you'd be shocked. And you know, as an investigator, senior uh, investigator, supervisor, investigator, how much intelligence these people have on on the victims they're about to to perpetrate. Criminals adapt. You know, we find ways to stop them, and they adapt. And the same goes for internal diversion, which goes from pharmacy over to hospital, over to veterinary care, everywhere. Internal diversion, you know, it's sometimes it's a drug drug related and sometimes it's purely economical where the employees are working internally. They have and now they have full access legally and sometimes unlawfully access to the narcotics. They gain the trust of the pharmacist, the owner pharmacist, and now they have access uh, to the narcotics. And, you know, with Reporting by the DEA every couple of years, it, there's so much work to be done there. And back to COVID, if somebody is illicitly diverting internally and they pour, say, a dozen pills into their hand when nobody's looking and they're blocking a camera, and now they take two out, put them up their sleeve or down their pocket or down their shirt and put the rest back in, how do you know they didn't contaminate the rest of those pills that are in there? You know, those are all really interesting points and things that I don't think, you know, most people think about. Because, well, we, we really never had to before. I talked to a pharmacist yesterday. I said, look, our job is to keep you safe and out of harm's way, but keep it accountable, maintain that chain of custody, the constant supervision. But again, the earlier, and you know, uh, some of the other NASCA members who have done a great job with this, whether it be Invistics, Heliometrics, Protenis, the earlier you can detect diversion of controlled substances the earlier you can make it a an HR issue if it's internal, the earlier you can keep yourself out of trouble with the regulators. And I would say make it you know make it a human compassion issue. There may be real issues there. Not become when somebody on the outside is affected, you know, fatally or otherwise, and now it becomes a criminal prosecutorial issue. So I think it's really good that we're most importantly through NASCA, through industry, through the the enforcement people. As I learned in the Coast Guard, when people saw me coming down the dock, they saw me at a, at a uh, massive port operation in Port of Miami, Port Lauderdale, Port of New York. They said, oh, my God, here's the Coast Guard. We're in trouble. I said, no, no, no. I'm here to educate you and help you. Yes, the, the main reason I'm here as, as, as an officer in the Coast Guard 
is to prevent accidents from happening, preventing you from being exposed to hazmat, prevent you from losing an arm or a leg or a limb in the in handling of, of containers and cargo. My job is to look out after you. And I think that if we can really re-emphasize that to into the, the pharmaceuticals, pharmacists, let's just put all the pharmacists together, and the nurses, that working more openly with us will limit your exposure to liability, limit your own direct exposure to any type of harm or any other type of liability. And, and that's what they, they, we need to see us as, as a resource, not as an enforcement mechanism. That's an important point, and that's a good one. Yeah, I don't think you go in and slap a fine on somebody. When you know, we're in the Coast Guard, we, we try not to impede the flow of goods. And we, you, we almost never would sit, write up a citation. Uh, we would give a warning and say, look, no, look, give you 48 hours, rectify the situation, we'll release you for, for commerce. You know, so we always look at a corrective, a non uh, judicial type action. And then if you ignore us or you're a repeat offender, then we're going to take this, you know, throw the CFRs at you. I thank you, Chris, for being on the show. That was a great discussion. Appreciate your insight, and especially in, in light of the pandemic and all the things that's going on, and applaud your work, and thank you again for your service. Thank you. And a closing note, uh, I, I think the, the greatest uh, thing that we need to help stemming the tide of opioid abuse, of diversion, is uh, Congress and the state legislators really need to open up their eyes and provide more financial uh, and other resources uh, to the members of NASCA, to the DEA, uh, FDA, NIH. We, we just are totally underfunded and understaffed and underutil- underutilized and under-resourced. I've seen that for the six years I've been in this industry, that it, you know it's easy for people to pass laws and regulations, but not give the people responsible for regulating those professionals, the tools and the resources necessary to to carry them out. And that's like the strongest message I have when I speak to my senators and congressmen. You need to really give law enforcement, uh, the regulatory bodies, the educational bodies, the tools and resources to do the mission effectively, or don't don't tell us to do it. Alan, thank you. Thank you, uh, NASCA, for all the work you do. I'm your host, Alan McGill. On behalf of the Executive Board of NASCA and our Education Committee, I want to thank you for joining us. The music for this podcast was provided by Joseph McDade. And if you like Joe's music, please visit josephmcdade.com. You can support Joe on Patreon. You can also find all of our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever podcasts can be found. I also want to thank our platinum, gold, and silver sponsors. Without them, we could not provide educational opportunities such as this podcast. NASCA also invites you to join us at our annual training conference where we educate through networking, exchange of ideas, and by experiencing some of the best speakers on current topics and trends involving controlled substances. To learn more about NASCA, our conferences and educational programs, visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nasca.org. I hope you learned something and moved forward. Please join us again on our next podcast.